Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha. Today on the line, we have Dr. Markovitz. Becky, are you there? I'm here. Hi. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Do you mind doing a brief introduction for us, please? Sure. Um, As Amanda said, I'm Dr. Rebecca Markovitz. I am an assistant teaching professor at UMass Lowell, and I'm the assistant program coordinator for our online verified course sequences. We have both a BCBA and BCABA course sequence. Um, Prior to coming to UMass Lowell, I was a clinical director at a school for um, individuals with autism, other developmental disabilities, and severe behavior disorders. And you happen to be one of my wonderful and fellow classmates at Simmons College. So that's how we met, and I'm really glad that our paths crossed. And now no longer as students and as professors and uh, practitioners in the field, um, today we were going to talk about some of the ways students can navigate some of their online learning experiences. And in your current role, I think you're definitely in a place of expertise, or you can offer that for us. Can you talk to us about about why your interest and how you got into the role of online and what the online world is like? Sure. Um, So as I said, I was working at a school for individuals with special needs, and I found that I loved um, seeing the staff progress in their skills as much as I loved seeing my clients progress, which led me to become an adjunct at several of the programs in the area, And then when UMass Lowell had an opening for a faculty position, I applied, and now here I am. And so, um, like I said, I coordinate our online programs, and also I'm affiliated with our Master of Science in Autism Studies program, which is a program for BCBA preparation and Massachusetts uh, state licensure. The prevalence of online programs has really grown as our field has grown. Um, What are you thinking are some of the differences between a brick-and-mortar experience and an online experience for students? Do you have any insight for us on that? So the main thing is how you contact your instructor or the professor. And there are a variety of ways that this can happen. Um, And usually with um, an on-campus program or if you're going into a classroom and you have that physical presence there, you're face-to-face with your professor. And you can talk to them after class. You can set up an appointment with them. There's office hours. So there are a lot of ways to to get that interaction. Um, When you are participating in an online program, you don't always get that face-to-face experience. There are some components of online programming that have that, such as um, online office hours or live um, classrooms where everybody logs in at the same time and and you're kind of in this video or um, e-classroom. But sometimes the experience is a little bit different. Um, And so we do have students who try our online classes and prefer the brick-and-mortar experience, and we have some students who prefer the online version. So sometimes it really is up to student preference. What are some of the benefits to being in an online program versus a brick and mortar? Uh, Aside from the access to a a professor, what are some of the benefits that your students share? 
online programs are very flexible. And so I know in our programs, we have students, you know, we're based out in Massachusetts, but we have students from all over the country and we have several international students as well. So these programs can be essential for students who don't have access to the types of programs or the types of education that they want to receive in their area or in their state or even in their country. So online programs are a fantastic option for those students. Um, another thing is that a lot of online programs, um, because there's no set class time um, for some types of programs, the when you can get the work done can be a little bit more flexible. So a lot of our students work or a lot of online students or students in general um, they are working full-time, they're parents, they're taking care of family members, and so they can't, they can't go to class during the day. And so online programs provide that flexibility or provide that ability to still go to school and, and still go to work or still take care of your family. I've had a, a shared combination of experience. I did some online courses myself. I did some brick and mortar, and I've taught in both of those situations. And I definitely think there are pros and cons for us here in Hawaii when you talk about international access, I mean, across islands, that's, that's how we um, are educating uh, our future behavior analysts in the state. And because that's already kind of the local um, access that we have, it then opens up all of the other online programs as well as seen as sort of relatively com uh, comparable options. What about the length of classes? That's something that I have always struggled with, both live, uh, online, and in brick-and-mortar classes. The links can really um, be better suited for a certain setting. Do you have experiences on varying links of class and what, what might make more sense, or in your experience, what is easier to engage with? Um, do you mean like semester lengths? Oh, no. I actually was thinking more about like the duration of the class. So if you're oh. logging in for like an hour, hour and a half, or... Um, if you're right. logging in and it's a five-hour class, uh, and those sorts of things. And then I think about if we can reach people internationally, we also have those time zone barriers. <laughs> so how have you kind of navigated some of that, or do you have any advice for anyone else? Um, I think it depends on the type of program that you're entering, and that might be something if you're looking um, – you're trying to figure out which online program is best for you, that is definitely something to consider because there are synchronous programs and asynchronous programs where the synchronous programs have a specific time that you might have to log in as class time or a live discussion or um, a live chat with the professor, whereas asynchronous programs don't have that, that component. So, for example, the programs here at um, UMass Lowell are asynchronous, so there's never a specific time that you have to log in. So, for our international students or students who are not um, in the same time zone, it, it removes that component or removes that maybe worry some students have that, um, you know, they might have to be logging in at, you know, 2 in the morning their time to make sure that they're meeting the right class time. That makes sense, and actually that's a really helpful point that you talked about it, and I appreciate your definitions. As somebody who's been both a student and a professor, I'm always confused. What does synchronous and asynchronous mean in the relation of a class? And then I have to go back and go through my brain and go, which one is it? So I think offering some really clear language for people can help mm -hmm. them if they're trying to make those decisions as well. Um, what are some other kinds of uh, considerations you would have students you know, think about? Um, so class 
length and size, whether or not the professor is available. Are there other um, critical areas that you can think of? So along with the asynchronous, synchronous, sometimes programs offer, especially online courses, what's called an accelerated semester, which is why I was a little confused when you asked about length. Um, and so you always want to check to see what the length of the semester is. So for example, here we have um, we, we have an accelerated semester of eight weeks and 10 weeks and then the full 14 weeks. Where And so our, um, our BCBA verified course sequence program is the full 14 weeks, but we get students that are confused about that all the time because if they're just going to the general online and continuing education website, they see all of this different information. So you want to check on that because it can be different for different programs. You also want to see what supplemental materials the courses are going to require and what they provide. So a lot of programs might use um, modules like um, behavior development solutions, or they might use um, Relias, or they might use some other um, module or digital textbook. And so you want to make sure that you're taking those things into consideration and the books required for each course, especially if you're thinking about um, tuition or financial aid. Um, so, because, you know, we all want to know how we're going to pay for our courses and have to pay them back, and so that's always a big consideration. Um, you want to think about what is considered full-time and is financial aid available for, for your program. Um, you want to look at um, the components of the course. So do they have live discussions or just regular discussion posts where you can kind of post throughout the week? Are you doing quizzes? Are there video lectures? What types of readings are required? What types of assignments are required? Because each program is going to do it a little bit differently. Um, and, and, we, and sometimes students start out in one online program and don't really like it and then switch to another program. So when it's coming to, to that information, what you also might want to know is the course content allo allocation that each program has because it's important to remember that, um, you know, for verified course sequences, each program is allowed to allocate their the content hours differently. So if you're doing combinations of coursework, it might not match up the right way, and then you end up with missing content hours when you apply for the exam. Interesting that you should say that. I actually had that experience myself, uh, even though I tested about a decade ago, a little bit over. Um, I had taken the coursework for BC ABA certification and had obtained that certification. And then when I took my master's, um, which is a full master's program, 52 credits, but I had the intro and ethics courses waived because I had already um, taken them with a BC ABA. And when I applied to sit, the board questioned whether or not the one university that I had taken the certificate program through had the same course allocation. Um, it was for ethics in particular. And so what we had to do was, you know, it wasn't impossible. It was able to line up, and I didn't have to retake the coursework. But I did have to work really closely with the director and the professors to, to you know, um, justify the allocation and then sort of petition the board. And um, when you're at the point of sitting set, uh, ready to take that exam, you definitely don't need any additional unnecessary stress. So that's mm -hmm. really great advice that I only learned through the mistakes or the experiences I had. And I think it, we, if we can share that with others, that's really good. Something else I remember in my program um, was 
a professor saying to me as I was starting, you know, every day you're going to sacrifice something while you're enrolled in a graduate program or, you know, maybe while you're taking these courses. And the the sort of what was implied was like, and it's not going to be this program, right? Um, meaning that I, in some ways I kind of took it to mean like, what, what's going to give in my life? So if I'm going to be adding in something so additional, is there anything that I'm able to offset, you know, like get support with or, um, um, you know, I guess get support with? What kinds of ways do you have for advice for students um, as you're experiencing a professor of the online program that they could try to create a better balance or maybe even try to um, set the stage for it as they're entering the program? Ideas there? So that is a great question because I get students who ask me all the time, how many hours per week is this course going to be? And I don't have a good answer for them because some students go through the material fairly quickly and other students take a little bit longer time to go through everything. So one of the suggestions that I have for students is to really look at the material, you know, look at your syllabus, make sure you download your syllabus as well. A lot of students Forget that once the course is over, they don't necessarily have access to the course anymore. So if you need that syllabus, it can be difficult to get. So always download your syllabus. Um, and then look at what the expectations are for each week or across a semester. Um, because sometimes students really don't start any of their work until the, you know, after the work week is over. But that can be, um, that in some instances can be a mistake because it doesn't leave you any time if you do have questions to contact your professor and ask. Um, maybe you get multiple versions of a quiz and you have to meet a certain criteria and it's better to take one quiz earlier to see how you do so you have time to restudy and ask questions before you take the next one. Um, and so kind of breaking down the material for the week and figuring out when you can do it and kind of assigning times, maybe smaller blocks of times across the week instead of large chunks of times on the weekend because I know, you know, for myself, um, I don't want to be doing a ton of work on the weekend either. <laughs> so figuring out times during the week where I can, you know, allocate smaller amounts of time to get everything done and, and kind of thinking ahead has, I know for me, been helpful when I have to grade or, or prep other documents or prep for courses um, instead of, you know, my class being on Monday and it being Sunday night and going, oh, crap, I have to do all this stuff, which I have also done as well. Yeah, I don't know who hasn't, <laughs> who hasn't done both. So we're, uh, we have a little bit of experience in each. Um, I think something you said that was really, that resonated with me was trying to avoid doing everything on the weekends. And I am, I am definitely that person who does kind of cram everything in. And then, and then I think the risk that you run is that it starts to become aversive learning about this magical science becomes aversive, you know, attending class to your professor feels like, oh, another lesson, when later on, we're going to be going, oh, my gosh, that person was my, prof that, that I had that much knowledge at my disposal, and I didn't know, you know, kinds of things, right. and so I think just having those small incremental setting things aside, or even as you mentioned, if nothing else, previewing the expectations for the semester and then for the week, can at least let you know what you're allocating for your weekend and help you make an informed decision. And, you know, we've got to work during the week, but we also have, you know, family and friends and people get married and have celebrations and lots of other things that we want to be available for. Um, for me, I know that while doing my master's 
and then went right into my doctoral program, that I miss a lot of family vacations. And um, I attribute that for why I live in Hawaii. And you're welcome to come visit me anytime. Um, <laughs> um, so I think you've offered a really, a really um, good amount of insight into just thoughtful thinking when approaching any program. What would you give as advice to someone who's wondering whether or not they should pursue behavior analysis at all? Um, and they're saying, look, I'm interested. Maybe they're in education. Maybe they're working in the schools. Maybe they pursuing psychology or they have a family member or neighbor or something and they said what is this ABA thing um, what kind of what guidance would you offer that person so I think I have um, some advice maybe on two ways that someone can figure out whether or not this is the right path for them and the first one might be just getting some experience so you talked about maybe they're working in a school and they you know, maybe there's a BCBA that comes into their classroom as a consultant, um, talking to that person, asking them about their experiences. And a lot of, there are a lot of companies out there that are looking for um, part-time employees or in-home or paraprofessionals. So if your time, if, if your life allows for that, even just talking to those people or maybe trying a part-time job in that respect. And as far as the courses, some people, and I get this question a lot, um, from potential students that they're not quite sure and and they're not they like what they're doing but they're not quite sure about whether or not this is the field for them and so one of the things you can also look into is a lot of programs um, they'll let you take a few courses without officially enrolling or applying to a specific program and so we can have students who essentially test out um, test out the coursework whether they like online coursework or whether they like the the field or the content of the courses before they end up applying and enrolling in a program. That's that's something that's really helpful that I don't think I think about uh, much. Um, so good, thank you for adding that in. Definitely getting experience is something I think has helped me. When I, I remember when I was entering my master's program, everyone there had very different background experiences, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but I was able to draw from at least like, oh, that's sort of like what I was doing this time or that reminds me of this and when you start making those personal connections then it can start you know really to help you digest the information but as far as taking a few courses and seeing like is this the field for me um that's a that's a really good piece of advice thank you for offering that another question i have for you is about the verbal community like creating a verbal community is really important and when you're in an online platform you may not be interfacing with peers as much either. And, you know, I think back to our experiences, Becky, and having met you, sitting next to you in a classroom is probably a big part of how we started talking. Um, how do you see that occur for students in the online platform? Because I know it, they can create cohorts and, and cohesiveness, but do you have any, um, any information or insight on that? One of the things, and I always emphasize this, to the students in the courses that I teach um, is typically there is some sort of discussion board or discussion posting that you have to do as part of online courses and to really use that as your, as your practice because the professor is reading it, the other students are reading it. So this is a really great opportunity to work on, even though you're not necessarily talking, um, writing out your and practicing your technical language and your use of the technical language and your verbal behavior. Um, 
I know that even if it's not necessarily the topic of the week that we're hitting on, I always provide feedback to my students about how they're using the terminology or, or how they're phrasing certain things to make sure that they're, they're, they're learning about it and they're, this is your place to make those mistakes because you have someone who's going to provide you feedback and teach you. Um, it's okay to be wrong about it because you're still learning. And so making sure that you're really using those opportunities to, to give really thorough answers um, and to practice going back to the literature, going back to your primary sources to support what you're saying. Um, and the other thing too is, especially in written discussion posts, um, students can have a tendency to pick the posts that, that they agree with or that they understand the most and just say, hey, I think you had a really good idea about that or I really like how you phrase that. Um, and something that students can do is instead find the posts where you're not quite sure what the person is saying, or maybe you have a different interpretation of what was said, or maybe you just think they're wrong, um, and practice professionally debating with, with someone. And again, this is going to be an essential skill for you as a professional, but you also get that, that practice with the, with the technical language as well in a, in kind of a safe place where you can um, where you can get that feedback. And I'll also provide feedback to students on maybe how they answered the question. If they disagreed with someone, maybe they were um, not as professional as they could be, and that's something I can provide feedback on as well. That's something I really like to see or hope that more professors or all professors are doing. And, you know, I think the feedback is really important. And the fear of failure is strong in students, especially for those who I think are in human service field, right? We have mm -hmm. high expectations for ourselves because we're trying to help others. And I think something that you said that also resonated with me was when you said preview that material so that you can contact your professor if you have questions. I could, on the professor end, I could always tell the person who hadn't done that because there's a panic the night before. And it's like, I have materials, I have answers, we have support. Um, so don't be intimidated. Don't be afraid to ask those because, like you said, it mm -hmm. is your safe space and your place to practice. But professionalism as well with the, you know, with the increase in social media, with uh, Facebook and Twitter and other platforms, we're seeing students, we're watching them uh, engage in this verbal behavior with large verbal communities. And some of them um, really do uh, contribute and uh, have lots of incredible conversations. I would say anyone who's, who's commenting is pretty much contributing. Um, but there are definitely places where you can see sometimes just uh, the need for refinement and how they're delivering mm -hmm. their messages. And I think you see that in behavior analysts who aren't students, and I think we see that in people who aren't behavior analysts. So I'm not sure it's unique to our, us and our field and our students, but it's something that's available for us to evaluate. And so see it as an area where we could, you know, mindfully be educating them. So I think that's really good input for professors. So thanks for that. Um, before we get off today, the call, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Or maybe you could share with us like a favorite conference or publication that you have that we can all then delve into as our homework. Anything like that? Um, I'm trying to think. Um, right now, I am reading The Science of Consequences by Susan Schneider, and I'm extremely enjoying it. Um, and I, you know, I just like finding all of these different books or publications. Um, 
And I think looking, you know, just kind of a tip in general, I think people, when they're students, forget about local conferences that they can attend to start building their networks and start looking to see what people in their area are doing. So, you know, I try to attend my local conferences as well to see what my colleagues are up to in this area, but just checking your own areas as well for professional organizations and and conferences because you can learn a lot um, and maybe not have to go too far. You know, taking a trip to ABAI every year is nice, but it's not always doable. I have to repeat that mantra. It's not always doable. Every year I say I'm going to take this year off, and I haven't done that yet. So some year I will. <laughs> it's not <laughs> always doable. Um, no, I think, <laughs> yeah, the advice of localized um, knowledge is really important because it helps you build that network. And then when you have the opportunities or when you're traveling or when you, you know, when you, I try to just kind of wrap things together um, when I can, you know, um, and then see what's going on in other areas because that can help expose us. And hopefully mm-hmm. things like this podcast and things that other people are doing in the field can, can give us that information. But when we're talking about the community and we're talking about network, nothing's more important than building that community and linking arms really with the people around you. And I'd like to see our profession continue to be collaborative or to become more collaborative um, within the field, across fields, um, as we're mm-hmm. growing, as we're in our adolescence, is mature. And um, I think a lot of what you've, what you've talked about today really models that and um, inspires us to try to do the same. So thank you for joining us today on the call. Thank you. I enjoyed being here. For anyone who'd like to learn more information about applied behavior analysis, please feel free to go to www.behaviorbabe.com.